Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. When somebody dies, people are definitely, like, they, they do not know how to, like, talk to you about it, which I think is normal. Like, I have been on the other side of it where, like, somebody's been like, so-and-so died, and I'm like, oh, I don't know how to respond, even though this just happened to me. This is Death, Sex, and Money. I just killed my best friend. And your worst enemy. Same difference. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Are you guys like boyfriend, girlfriend? And need to talk about more. You're an incompetent setup. I'm Anna Sale. Rachel Ward had been a widow for two years the first time we talked, back in 2015. And it had been a long two years. I guess I'm kind of hoping this is also sort of a juncture in my life and like a transition point. You're hoping? Hope so. She'd just written a Medium post that went viral. It was titled, I'm sorry I didn't respond to your email. My husband coughed to death two years ago. It was her effort to be done with all the social awkwardness that comes with death. It's always really stressful when I have to tell somebody. It's su- it's such a, like, you really have to figure out, you have to do a lot of, like, on-the-fly decision-making. Like, I've been kind of a dick about it a few times where I've just been like, oh, yeah, mm, did you know I'm a widow? <laughs> or, like, been like, yeah, I know how you feel. My husband died. <laughs> like, I've, I've delivered this news in, like, a pretty terrible way before. What's going on when that happens? Like, what... It- you making a joke? <laughs> yeah, or I'm just going to, like, get this out here in this, like, big, fast way. And then hopefully, like, as fast as it came, it'll go. Rachel was 32 when her husband Steve died. He was 35. They lived in Washington, D.C. and had been together for more than a decade. Steve had a history of heart problems, but he was back at work after his most recent surgery. Still, he wasn't feeling great. We honestly thought he had a cold and that it was, like, just not really clear, like, taking a, a while to clear up because he was stressed out about this starting this new job. Like, it, I, <laughs> like, I don't know why, why it didn't occur to us that this could be a complication. And when did you realize it was serious? Um, when, he, when he coughed up blood. Like, he was, he was coughing, and I could tell there was something in his chest. And I was like, okay, dude, cough it up, whatever it is, which in retrospect is horrifying. And right as I was, like, getting my phone, he collapsed, mm-hmm. like, onto his knees, and then he fell onto his side. Did you go with him in the ambulance? Yeah, I sat in the front seat. As I was leaving the house, I grabbed a pair of his flip-flops, because I was like, he's not wearing shoes and they're loading him into an ambulance. He's going to need these when we leave later tonight. I don't know. <laughs> you know, like, so clueless about what was actually going on. But once once I was in the ambulance, that was sort of the first time that I was like, oh, shit, this is not this is really bad. Steve was coughing because his lungs were filling with blood. He had an infection, likely related to his surgery, that they didn't know about. Just a few hours after he collapsed at home, Steve died in the hospital. Rachel's sister met her there, so she wasn't alone when she went in to see Steve's body. 
It's traumatic. You know, they've got him all bundled up, like basically like wrapped up and stuff up to his chin because I'm sure what was under there was terrible and they didn't want us to see it, but they'd cleaned off his face. Um, And so we go and we see the body and then we come out and a nurse kind of like has me by the elbow and she's like walking me out of the ER and she says, it's okay to cry, honey. You can cry. And I was, I like knew intellectually that I was probably in shock and I was like, I'll do that later, I guess. Um, And I said to her, but he was such a good husband. And she said, yeah, but he did a shitty thing today. (laughs) Are you kidding me, lady? (laughs) Like, I was like proud of it, actually, because it felt like she was like, this bitch could take it. Like, she totally just like, she read the room and she was like, I got a zinger for this one. (laughs) It was, it was like perfect. I almost feel like they're like, parallel universes that exist. Like, there's a universe where she didn't say that, and I went down, like, a totally different grief journey, and there's the universe where she did, and I was like, "Mm, well... (laughs) Like, that kind of, like, shrugging emoticon. A shrug. Like, what you do when you're trying to not let a terrible thing get at you and just push forward. That's what Rachel did, initially. She went back to work three weeks after Steve died. She's a radio producer and was mostly working overnights for NPR. She also packed up her things and moved in with her sister. I basically never went home to our apartment. Um, I slept there a couple of nights, but I slept on the couch, not in our bed. And um, because it just felt like the upstairs was like haunted, like the last place he had been alive. And like it had like all of this like kind of like, I don't know, it just felt when I when I say it felt haunted, I mean like it felt like weighted. It felt like there was like something emotional up there. So I didn't I didn't go up. I tried not to go upstairs very much when I was at the house, and I wasn't there very often. So you were you were married for three years when he died. Yeah. What did you learn about the paperwork that comes with death? I. I mean, this is, like, embarrassing, but I haven't done a lot of it. I mean, it's two years out, and I haven't probated as a state. I haven't—I'm st- I'm still on his phone plan. So in, like, November of 2013, I noticed that um, I didn't have cell service anymore. And I was like, what's going on? Like, I normally have service here. And then I got home and I like called AT&T and they're like, yeah, we cut off your phone because you haven't paid for it since August. <laughs> and so I, I told I told whoever was on the other end of the line, I was like, well, here's the thing. Like my husband died. I thought I thought it was just being paid for out of our like whatever account. And um, she was like, well, do you want me to like switch the service over and like put it in your name? And if, if you do that, it, you might lose all of his voicemails. Hmm. And that are, like, on his phone. And at that moment, like, I just, like, started weeping on the phone with this poor AT&T lady. And she was like, well, technically, now that you've told me he's dead, I'm supposed to, like, initiate this action, but I'm just going to delete all this stuff and, like, try and get off the phone with you because you're crying. Um, So that was kind of the last time I dealt with AT&T. I, it's just another one of, like these like very minute chores that have a lot of emotional baggage that 
I just, you know, it's, it's hard to do. Yeah. When were you, when, when were you the saddest? Um, maybe like a month out, there was, there was a period where I was very aggressively trying to like not let go of memories. Like the thing that was most upsetting to me was the idea that I would forget things. Mm -hmm. And so I started keeping a diary so I could like write down little memories as they came to me. Um... The story of, like, what actually happened, to the best that I can remember it, I, I like, made myself sit down and write down these details. Um, and I guess that's, that's processing that is important to do. I felt like I was hearing Rachel do that processing in real time. And it made me want to wait to share her story, to see what happened next. So we did. Coming up, what Rachel told me after two more years of grief and life after death. I had, like, sort of absorbed this, like, (laughs) floating grief wisdom that you shouldn't change anything for a year. I think, for me, the floating grief wisdom should have said two years. You've been sending us a lot of suggestions for our Welcome to Adulthood podcast playlist. We want to know about the podcast episodes from any show that you think contain important life advice, especially for people who are taking their first steps into adulthood. We've heard about episodes about personal finance, work-life balance, surprise pregnancies. You can suggest an episode by going to deathsexmoney.org slash adulthood or text the word episode to the number 70101. We'll share the playlist with you in a few weeks. And if you're in your 20s and need some life advice, we want to hear from you. We're headed to L.A. for a live show on Wednesday, October 4th. We'll be talking all about what we learn in our 20s, sometimes the hard way, and sharing some advice. Actors Nisi Nash and Alia Shawkett will be there with me, along with other special guests. You can get tickets and find out more on our Facebook page. So if you're in your 20s and having trouble figuring something out or just need some feedback, email us or send us a voice memo at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org to ask for advice, like our listener Ariel did. She's 27 and sent in a long list of things she's wondering about. How to deal with shifts in relationships with your parents as you get older, how to not date online, how to meet people outside of apps like Tinder and Match and Bumble or Hinge, how I'm taken seriously as a young female professional. So people in your 20s, send us your life questions. Again, our email address is deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. On the next episode, another take on widowhood, this one with nearly 20 years of perspective from Katie Couric. Her first husband, Jay, died in 1998. You know, I mean, you can ask me anything about it, but it's just, uh, it is so, it is so painful. Did you have an opportunity to ever fall apart? Oh, yeah. I fell apart all the time, but I really tried to not fall apart in front of Jay. And I think 
you know, looking back on it, there was probably a lot of dishonesty. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. I reached out to Rachel Ward again this year because I wanted to know how she was doing and what had changed since the first time we talked. I noticed that your um, your name on Twitter right now is Young Crone. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> how did you pick Young Crone? Um, I, actually, my friend came up with it. Oh, we were just joking around. I can't even remember, but it definitely feels right. Like, I feel like like I re-experienced adolescence after Steve died. And in a lot of ways, I still feel like that's happening to me. But I also feel, like, old, you know, because I am an aging person. I'm 36 years old, and that's older than a lot of my peers who on paper, have, like, an equivalent life position, you know, like, just moved to New York City and are single, except they're 26 and I'm 36. Soon after that first time we talked, Rachel left her job at NPR and moved to New York City. She took a job at Gimlet, the podcast company, producing the show Surprisingly Awesome. Then she bought an apartment in Brooklyn, using some of the money from Steve's life insurance. And do you live by yourself? I do. Well, I have a roommate. She's a calico cat. She doesn't lift a finger. <laughs> um, do you have a picture of Steve in your new apartment, like, that's prominently displayed? Well, um, I have, like, a little, like, shrine sounds kind of weird to say, but I have, like, a little, like, spot on one of my bookshelves that's, like, our wedding photo this photo album that has an image of him on the front that I made right after he died. And uh, and then I also have a framed, uh, we got engaged after a hockey game. And so I have the tickets from the hockey game in a little frame. So I have like that all sort of displayed in one spot. And it used to actually be like the first thing you saw when you walked into the living room and looked at the bookshelves. And then I migrated it over to the, like, second place that you would look um, uh, after I'd been living there for a little while. Why why did you move them? I actually moved them at my sister's suggestion. Um, I'm I'm guessing that the reason that she thought I should move them was so that they didn't communicate, like, to any (laughs) potential, like, suitors, (laughs) like, this guy's still very much on the front burner. <laughs> do you feel um, do you feel interested in dating? Yeah, I do. I mean, I have been on dates. Um, it 
feels super hard <laughs> to date. <laughs> um, the thing that I think about is that like dating is a long process. And like if you wanted to be like lots of people when they get to a relationship that's sort of like their partnership, that's the end result of a, of like meeting and hanging out with a lot of people. And then like, you know, a bunch of relationships that last for like three weeks or six months or two years. And when I think about the rate at which I'm moving, I feel like many, many, many years away from like approaching having a stable partnership like I had before. <laughs> because I just haven't like I went on uh, like last month, I think, or two months ago was the first time I'd gone on two dates with the same person. <laughs> so at the rate I'm moving, it's, you know. Do you feel like that's, I mean, it's it's interesting because dating is hard for everyone in New York City. And then you have this. <laughs> Wait, you think this is an original material? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like, it's an, it's a lot of pressure you have on top of dating being difficult for you it has the added pressure of am i not am i not succeeding in dating in new york city because i'm not ready or because i haven't done enough work or put in enough time with my sadness right or like there's something even more fundamentally broken like before even all of the like widow stuff like what if uh what if I've been, like, broken since, like, kindergarten <laughs> and, like, like Steve was a fluke? Hmm. Like, what if, what if I, like, scammed him into, like, being my partner <laughs> and I'll never be able to run that scam again? <laughs> it's expired. How do you think you're doing with your grief and how, with thinking about Steve's death? Um, I actually feel moderately okay in my grief. Like, I feel like I understand, like, some of the dynamics of, like, when in the year I'm going to, I'm going to feel a little less capable or more capable. Um, like, among people that I already know, I feel like pretty comfortable like bringing him into a conversation and being like oh Steve used to say this really funny thing um so in relation to my own grief like I think I, I I'm gonna give myself a six out of ten the thing I worry about is being like stuck a little bit you know like mm. it feels like there's some sort of like, I have to be, like, cooked to a certain level, and I'm just, like, not. So the thing that I worry about with being stuck is, like, what if I never cook and I'm, like, and I'm never in another relationship again? So that's, that is a thing that I, like, periodically will sort of, like, my mind will sort of wander to that. But I've also lately been having some really nice, like, realizations about how it's kind of great to be single and not have to, like, um, not have to, like, do the kind of, like, draggy parts of relationships. Yeah. When was, like, when was a moment that that flashed before you recently where you were like, I'm into this? Every time I go to bed 
whenever I want and I sleep <laughs> across the entire bed and then like I don't care if the top sheet is tucked in at the end or not like that's I don't know like this is actually weird that that's the example that I'm giving because like I I don't think sleeping next to another person like that's actually a nice thing um but there is something nice about not having to compromise at all. And I guess that's just the moment, like, right before bed is when I, like, often am in sort of a reflective space. And so that's when I'm thinking, like, ah, this is good. Mm-hmm. Do you miss Steve? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when do you miss him? Um, also right before I go to bed. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, and when I'm confronting like anything in my life that requires like a level of patience, because I'm often impatient in the face of like a even moderately complicated problem. Uh, oh yeah. I often like have jokes I want to tell him. I'm like, oh my God, you won't like, I'm, I frequently find myself with like some like joke that like is not quite right for Twitter and then I have to like, like I, I will like get out my phone and like scroll down my contacts and be like, who's going to get this? Because like the person I want to send it to doesn't exist anymore. And also like when I when I use his jokes, I often like I I try to like um, I try to credit him as much as possible when I steal his jokes, um, borrow his jokes. He abandoned them. They're my <laughs> jokes now. When he willed me his jokes. <laughs> um, so I talk about him a lot in that context. As we're talking, there's part of me that's wondering, like, do you do you buy the idea that there are stages of grief? Like that there's somehow this, like, you know, you're going to graduate from one level to the next? I mean, intellectually, I'm like, fuck Kuba Ross. Like, you don't know me. <laughs> um, and after Steve died, a lot of people were like, you know the stages of grief are fake, right? <laughs> like, I felt like I had a lot of support for the idea of, like, this is going to come and go, and, like, you're going to think you're fine, and then, like, suddenly you're not going to be fine. Like, I have to remind myself all the time that grief is not linear or that that's the, like, paradigm I've chosen to, like, participate in. Um, mm -hmm. But I think by thinking, like, by having that, like, sort of, like, sneaking suspicion that, like, the reason that I haven't been in another relationship is because I'm not, like, I haven't, like, passed some internal, like, test is is internalized belief that there are stages of grief. What would be the the grief wisdom that you would pass on? Like, what have you, what have you learned about death and about grief that you would say to someone who suddenly lost someone they loved that's really hard because i feel like especially right after i had like no bandwidth to help other people process their experience let me think about it for a second so i have like a mentality to propose and a tactical 
um, solution. So the mentality I would propose is to um, just ignore the stages of grief. Like, that's not a real thing. Don't expect anything of yourself and sort of like it's okay to let yourself like float a little bit for any period of time, Um, which is sort of the advice I got from Nina Totenberg. (laughs) No less an authority than was (laughs) um, go back to work like as soon as you feel like you can, like throw yourself into your work. And I would say like, sure. But, like, more than that, just, like, make sure that you're not judging yourself against some, like, pre-trauma uh, standard. So that's that's my mentality advice. My tactical advice would be to start journaling. I can't believe I said journaling like it's a fucking verb. No, I mean, like, keep a journal. Oh, um, I feel like it's a useful document for measuring progress. Because if you're going to blow off Kubler-Ross, you need some way to, like, benchmark. <laughs> have you have you probated Steve's death? It, like his will? Yeah. No. <laughs> I haven't. I don't even know how to do that. Does it feel like something you're avoiding or just, um, like, a, an errand that you haven't gotten to? <sighs> it feels like, an, like a chore I haven't done. But... You know, if I interrogate it, like, like even a little bit, it feels like the reason the chore is not done is probably because I don't want to deal with it. You know, it actually entails some emotional work that I haven't done or like am scared to do <laughs> or whatever. Um yeah, I don't know. That's also the kind of like, kind of like even moderately complicated task that Steve would have done. Mm-hmm. Um, so <clears throat> I'm just waiting for him to do it. <laughs> That's Rachel Ward. She still works for Gimlet and co-hosts her own podcast on the side called Seltzer Deathmatch, a show about finding the best seltzer in America. She also has an essay in an upcoming book from the website Modern Loss. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Emily Botin, and Andrew Dunn. Our interns are Manka Borcante and Kent McDonald. Thank you to you both for all you did for us this summer. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death Sex Money. And you can email us anytime at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. Rachel has since changed her Twitter name from Young Crone. But she says she'll always have a soft spot for her alter ego. Crones are cool and powerful. Like, I used to go to these house shows in D.C. where I would be, like, the oldest person there by, like, a decade and, like, just be like, well, this is where we're at. And, um, yeah, that's the thing about young crone is she does what she wants. She's very empowered. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.